Well, I hear it again and again. People do not change. Do you believe that? Maybe you've been burned before when you expected someone to act differently and they didn't. Maybe you think it's foolish to hope for a change in someone that you know is uh, difficult. I remember when my wife and I were engaged, uh, she received a lot of unsolicited advice on how to be a wife. And someone once told her, don't try to change him. Not quite sure what that person meant. <laughs> Assume it was uh, well-meaning. But I don't agree with that. I need change. I want change. Part of the problem I see in our culture today is that we've so engineered uh, our situation that change is out of the picture for us, the possibility of change. We surround ourselves with people who act like us and think like us, hold all the same opinions. We have these carefully constructed echo chambers that simply repeat back to us and affirm our own views. Enough to where we want raise the question, do we even want change? But when we turn to the letter to Colossians, Paul doesn't ask them, do you want change? And he doesn't even give them a list of commands to say, here's what you need to follow in order to change. No, in fact, he declares, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you have changed. It's happened. You are already different. How can he say that? And what does it mean? Let's turn now to this passage again and hear what God has for us. But before we do, let's pray. Father, your word tells us that scripture itself is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, we know that when it pierces, it is painful. But we pray now for your sake, for your glory, for our good, that it might pierce us and that you might, through it, uh, change us. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's often been pointed out that the, the difference between religion and Christianity is that religion says, I must obey in order to be accepted by God. I have to do enough, I have to make myself worthy for God to love me and receive me and accept me. Christianity says, I cannot. It begins with the idea that I, on my own, do not have the ability to make myself acceptable. I can't change. But God's grace intercedes. While I was still in my sins, as a sinner, Christ found me. It's all about his grace. Religion suggests that change only comes when we, on our own, clean ourselves up, if we follow a set of moral pr principles, if we become more and more disciplined. It will be the path to becoming a better person. At the end of the uh, chapter 2 in Colossians, you can see that the Colossians are tempted to follow what Paul calls self-made religion. It seems as though people have come into the Colossian church and said, 
that it, they need to pick it up and, and perform a lot of tasks, whether it's asceticism or uh, severity to the body or a list of rules. They need to do those things so that they can achieve some level of godliness or self-mastery. Now, Paul doesn't waste time arguing that these, whether these practices are good or bad. He simply says they will not work. He says they have no power, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I'm reminded of an old episode of Seinfeld. Craig, this is for you, Seinfeld fan. Uh, where George's father, uh, who, if you've ever watched the show, has uncontrollable anger. He has a temper that is just flies off the handle at the littlest thing, and uh, two comedic ends. Um, but he wants to stop that. He wants to, to restrain himself. And so he gets into this practice of every time he feels tempted toward anger, he chants, serenity now, serenity now. And throughout the episode, it kind of seems like it's working. He, you know, situations come up that would normally make him fly off the handle, and he would say, serenity now. It does not last the 30-minute episode. Near the end, of course, things start setting him off, and he's, serenity now, screaming at the top of his lungs. It's done nothing. It's not changed him one bit. If we could say it this way, the problem of self-made religion is that it's too optimistic about what's possible for humanity. Those who try self-made religion have too high a view of ourselves. The Bible teaches that on our own, our nature is such that even if we tried to be the most self-disciplined person on the planet, it would not really change who I am. External morality, behavior modification practices, they may seem and keep up an appearance of change, but it will do nothing to affect my desires. It won't change my heart. My heart will always bend away from God and towards myself and towards the things that are against God. That is why the gospel is such sweet news to those who have tried and failed. Because the gospel begins with the understanding that we are incapable on our own of turning toward God. But a loving God, looking at us while we were still sinners, forgives us. A loving God declares us righteous. This declaration what we call justification, is a legal status. It is as if we had a piece of paper that we could carry around all the time declaring what the final judgment will say and knowing that it's true. We have that final judgment for us. We are justified even while we sin, even while we carry around a whole history of sins in our life that people could line up in order to condemn us, we can say, you are right about all of those sins. But I have been declared right. 
And even more so, there's no fine print in the Christian life that when you receive this declaration in becoming a Christian, there's no fine print that says you have to pay it back in order to keep it. You know, my, my mortgage is, is such that uh, the bank gives me money so that I can, uh, all the money I need to buy the house. But if I don't keep paying it back, I don't get to live there any longer. The gospel is not like that. It is finished. Christ's work is complete. You are, if you are a Christian, you are simultaneously a sinner. You have sins in your life, and you will until the day you die. And you're completely righteous, declared so by God. That is a great truth. But here's the thing. If the gospel is only a legal declaration, if that is it, if I am really incapable of doing any good from then on, then what do I do about all those passages in Scripture that command me to change? How do I read the rest of Colossians chapter 3, which includes two rather substantial lists of sins that I need to avoid? And if I read a little further in chapter 3, a long list of uh, virtues, right things that I need to do. How can I do that if the gospel only provides a declaration? But here's the thing. It would be cruel of Paul to command us to obey something if we were incapable of battling sin. The best we could do in that situation is look back at what Christ has done and say, just let me hang on until life is over. But what Paul is explaining in this passage here is that what happens on the cross is not just a legal declaration. It's not just forgiveness. But the cross is more. The cross isn't simply a historical event that happened in the past somewhere that affects my future destiny sometime in whenever Christ comes back or I die. The cross has power now in my life. The cross has such power that it, when I become a Christian, it unites me to Christ. I, Christ himself, unites me to himself. Paul is claiming that the cross and the resurrection unite us so that actual change is possible. Christ so unites us with himself that what happened to him happens to us. Christ was crucified. We are now dead with him. Christ is raised from the dead. And we know that we will be raised from the dead in the next life. But here we see, presently, he has raised us from the dead. Even now, you have been crucified with Christ and raised with him. He says the same thing earlier in chapter 2 when he talked about baptism. That's a Christian's understanding really throughout time of when we join ourselves to Christ. When we become a Christian at our baptism, we have died with Christ. He says in chapter 2, you died with him. And God made you alive together with him. 
when we are united to Christ, it fundamentally changes us. We have a new life. Christianity sometimes talks about being born again, and that is a scriptural truth. But it's not simply going back to the starting point. In our first life, we were born from the womb. But this life requires death. It comes through our death and is lived only through Christ. There is a definitive break with our old life. Now, it's true that we will experience throughout our life a gradual increase in our godliness. Some call that progressive sanctification. We will get more and more holy. Increase in godliness in some way. But there is a sense in which the moment we became a Christian, we are fundamentally different. We have died and we've been raised from the dead. Look how Paul talks about that in verse 20. He says, with Christ you died. Verse 3, chapter 3, you have died past tense. The work is completed. You're dead. And then chapter uh, 3, verse 1, you have been raised. Past tense. You have been raised with Christ. In grammar, this is called the indicative mood. The indicative is a way of describing a sentence that's not a, a command, it's not telling us to do something, it's describing a fact. It's saying what is real. And Paul is describing us when he, he calls us, and he looks at us, he's holding up a mirror to us saying, you are no longer the same. It's not telling us what to do, it's telling us who we are. That's the indicative. You are dead. You've been raised with Christ. And that description should start to startle us, especially if we look at other places in, Paul, uh, in Paul's letters and even other New Testament writers as they start to describe what a Christian is like. It's, it's said in such radical ways, it, it's, it would make you blush if you heard them all together. And he, will, he will say, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. You may not want to start putting that in front of your name, but it's true of you. In other places, he will say, you are holy. And you start looking behind you at me? He says in Romans 6, you are dead to sin. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, you are sanctified. Past tense. I'm going to be the grammar police today. Sin no longer has mastery over you. You have been set free. Now, yes, you will still experience sin every single day of your life. That is why Paul writes the rest of chapter 3. Let's not make any mistakes about this. There's the presence of sin that will continue. This isn't perfectionism. Sin's presence remains, but its power is broken. If you only understood the gospel as a declaration, 
and you will know the freedom from guilt, and that is sweet. But until you understand regeneration, until you understand the new life, then you will never experience and understand the freedom from the power that Christ has accomplished when you were saved. It's the truth that uh, the hymn writer to Rock of Ages puts so wonderfully. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It's like he's reading this passage. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Guilt and power. The declaration cleanses us from guilt. We are no longer guilty before the judge, but it also cleanses us from the power of sin. It frees us, I should say. Whereas man-made religion was too optimistic and said that we could contribute something to our own redemption, we sometimes have the, the, the tendency to be too pessimistic about our new life in Christ, the life that Christ gave us. We see ourselves stuck in our sin. What's the difference that this, what, what difference would this make in your life? For Paul, it makes all the difference in the world. For Paul, this is the only basis on which he can give any commands. Because if we weren't in Christ, any imperative, any command that he would give would, would frustrate us. It would be cruel. The argument in 2.20 and in 3.1 is clear. Since you are dead, start acting like a dead person. If you are raised, start acting like a new person. God has made you new. All these imperatives, all these commands. Stop sinning, as he would go on to say, put to death sexual immorality, anger, malice, slander. All these commands, they're all predicated only on the fact that you are now dead to sin. The commands, the imperative, always and only rests on the indicative. The order is not reversible. There's no commands, and then all of a sudden you are dead. It's always in that order. You can't have a righteous life until you've been put to death and raised. Our failure is in part due to the fact that we keep forgetting the indicative. We need week after week for that mirror to be held up to us. The Colossians needed Paul again and again to tell them who they are. We're not living in the reality which God has brought us to. It's like if you have come to this country from another country, but you start living the same way as you lived in the other country, it's going to be confusing for you. If you lived your entire life in Britain, you got to stop driving on the wrong side of the road here. Don't pay for things in pounds. They're not going to give it to you. Actually, it's more than that. It's, it's like you're spending years in prison and then being freed for you day after day then to keep sitting in that cell and doing everything the guards tell you to do. To remain in slavery. And yet knowing, or forgetting it rather, that you are free. 
3.1 says, if you are raised with Christ, seek the things above. And then, which is pretty rare for Paul in Colossians, I think it's the only time he repeats himself. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. The idea that he's saying there is that we need to orient ourselves to this new life. To set our minds on it so that we can live it out. Everything has changed. Seek the things above. Now he doesn't mean by that that we need to look and try to figure out what's in heaven. Well, is there angels up there? Or am I trying to look for streets of gold? Or do I start practicing the harp or something like that? Now, what's the purpose of seeking the things above? Sometimes we, we talk about looking to heaven as a way to endure, as almost a compensation for the rough ways that life lives now. Okay, seek heaven, and that'll get, get you through the rough times. That's not his point here, though. What does it mean to seek the things above? Notice he doesn't say, set your mind on heaven. It's not a place that we're to focus on. And the word things is even misleading here. What is above that we should keep our eyes on? Well, he tells us it's Christ. And not just Christ, Christ seated at the right hand of God. That's what we're to seek. We're to seek the risen and ascended Christ and Christ at the right hand of God. That phrase, at the right hand of God, is significant. It's not just that, that Christ is up there having accomplished things and he gets the reward and is just waiting for you there. And it's not simply that, that Christ is up there before God. Christ, you'll notice, isn't there bowing to God. He's not up there pleading to God. He is sitting on God's right hand. It's, a, it's actually a quote from Psalm 110, the, the psalm we read there. So uniting Christ and God together that they are one. Reigning together, ruling together from heaven. Heaven everywhere in scripture is not a place fundamentally detached from creation, but it almost asks, acts as the control room for the created reality. It's where God rules and reigns. And there, Christ is in control. The risen and ascended Christ is there as king, reigning, doing all the things that was said of him in chapter 2, verse 15, disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. And if we're with him, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Grammar again. Present tense. Not when we get to heaven, we will be with him. We are with him now. We're in him. We must look up. We must seek that real vision in heaven. Because every time we look down, every time we look at this world, we tend to get discouraged. We, can, we tend to forget that the victory is won. 
we look at all the chaos around us and we really think that no one is at the wheel. Things don't make sense. Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? I have tragedy in my life. It seems purposeless and pointless. Look up and notice that those claims are false. Christ is at the controls. He is ruling and he is reigning. A few months ago, I was uh, with my parents uh, and my family watching a football game. My team was ahead. It seemed like a substantial lead, but then the other team started coming back. Uh, and it looked disastrous. We had recorded the game, so we were watching the tape delay. We didn't know anything about it. I caved. Get on my phone. We won. Whew. The game goes on. My brother, my dad, blood pressure going through the roof. Everybody's screaming. I'm cool as a cucumber. Oh, it's fine. You just got to trust. It'll be, it'll be okay. The other team comes back, takes the lead. Nah, it's, it's, they win the game. Why are you so calm? We got to look up. We got to look up and understand the reality of the situation. Christ is on the throne. He's ruling. That vision doesn't leave us passive. It doesn't say that, okay, well, now we don't need to worry and, and try if the victory is already accomplished. No, now it says I actually can fight because I know it's actually going to do some good. I can participate because I know it's not fated to lose. Here's the heart of the sermon. If I could just say it in one sentence. Knowing this reality, knowing the indicative, is the greatest asset as you battle sin in the Christian life. It's your best hope for change, real change, now. Think about the implications for your life. If you really have died to your old life, if you're really raised to the new life, then everything is open now. Everything's on the table. Everything that you thought wasn't possible before. Think about your battle with sin. If, Christ, if Christ's work of salvation is just a legal change in your status, then you have no hope that you will ever act any differently. You'll understand your sinful nature always keeping you down, and you're going to struggle with sin, and after a while you're going to say, why am I struggling? Because I know how this is going to wind up. In the same place it always winds up and will feel defeated. In the midst of temptation, you're going to become resigned. You've always lost to lust, you're going to lose again. You've always given into anxiety, you're going to give in again. If you feel like that, if you're bound to fail, you're either going to give in, or you're going to start ignoring the temptation altogether. Head into diversion, escapism, but if you really have new life, think about what that means. It finally means you have the possibility to fight temptation and win. Now, there's no guarantee. You may fail. Certainly you may fail. It may be a struggle you have your entire life. 
There isn't a guarantee, like, but like before, there was a guarantee, you will fail, always, 100% of the time. But the possibility that you could win that battle, that Christ has won in you already, that's hope. That gives me power that says I can put up a fight that I can resist. If I seek the things above, secondly, if I seek the things above and see Christ reigning, then that thing can give me a fresh perspective on my life. Hardship, suffering, tragedy. I now can actually be open to the possibility that God is, in, is part of this and it not be devastating news. If I know that he is reigning and I know what his reign will accomplish, then I can understand that he can be at the control of this and it can have purpose, even though I don't know it. I can say there is no chaos here. Thirdly, if I've died, if I've been given this new life, then I now have the freedom from trying to gain my acceptance from God or for others. I know my self-worth already. I know who he's made me to be. I now can start living it out. I can live the way he's what he's accomplished already. The Christian life isn't all about knowing. I know we've stressed a lot of that here, but, but it is at least that. Verse 2 makes the case that when I set my mind on what God has done, I begin to change with hope. How do you think about your Christian life? Is it one of constant battle, giving into temptation, a constant presence of sin? Or do you see it filled with hope? New Testament scholar uh, Herman Ritterboss put it this way. He says, the dominant viewpoint from which Paul considers the Christian life is not the remaining temptation of the flesh, but the power of the Spirit conquering all sins. So why doesn't this bold claim match my experience? Shouldn't I start seeing less and less of this sin in my life? Well, not necessarily. If this new life really does start working in your, in your mind and in your being, then all of a sudden your eyes are going to be open to, to sin in places you never thought to look before. You'll finally be aware of sin's pervasiveness for its entrenchment in your heart, for all the areas in which you have sort of discounted before. You now become alive and awake to. Maybe this will produce in you feelings like you are worse off. Look up. It's just a sign that you're doing it right. But there's another reason why our experience sometimes won't match this claim. is because of what he says in verse 3. He says, this new life is now hidden. It's hidden. Hidden to be revealed at the last day. Our true new life is not seen. It's not seen by others. Others who will look at you and say, what foolish life you're living. Others who will say, you don't look any different at all. But it's also hidden from us. And we have to ask, why can't I see this victory 
in my life in clear terms? Why can't I empirically see the death and the new life? Why can't it be uh, present here in a way that's visible to me with my own eyes? Why is our life hidden? Especially as if I've claimed is true that it's so essential, the greatest asset to our Christian life. Well, this only makes sense if this hiddenness is there by God's design. The hiddenness is part of the plan. And it's really due to God's patience and his grace. Verse 4 says that this new life will appear to all. It will, there will be a day when it's present and all will see, but that is the last day. It's the day when Christ will return. And when Christ returns, he will make all things fitting for those who have been remade, which means he will cast out and judge all that's not. Verse 6, a little later in, the next, in chapter 3, describes this as a day of wrath. On that day, Christ will return. And we will finally, when we appear, be at home. But until that day, God is patient as all the rest come in. Until that day, we see not with sight, but by faith. And yet we really need to have that view continually of what's going on in heaven. This passage is an invitation to a future that's filled with hope and possibility. By death and resurrection, it's an invitation to a future. A future that isn't bound to be in the same ruts that you've always experienced. You know, if your expectations of the future are just so dominated by the past, if it just casts this huge shadow over you that you wake up every day and say, it's just not going to be any different, you need this passage. You need to, the, the admonition to look and seek the things above. Understand the new life that Christ has given you. How do you view the, the new life? The tone of the New Testament, the Christian life, is filled with present hope and freedom. Look, change is scary. Resistance to change is comfortable and easy. But we can't live the Christian hope as something that we can just put on the shelf and take down when we face adversity or take down when death is present. That's not the purpose of the Christian hope. Christian, of the hope, Christian hope now is for us to apply to our lives, to transform us, to lead us into openness. Colossians 3 says, Christ has done more. Change isn't just possible, it's now your life. You need change. I need change. I need you to keep pointing me back to the reality of what Christ has done. We need each other until faith becomes sight to keep preaching to each other this same gospel that both frees us from its guilt and its power. Let's pray. Oh.